This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. First up tonight, um, we have heard often in recent years stuff about millennials. And a lot of the stuff we've heard about millennials, and those would be the group of people who are sort of in the range of about 18 to 35 years old, give or take. We hear a lot of negative stuff. We hear a lot of things that they don't, they're not hardworking, they're whiners, blah, 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 on and on. Well, a lot of that has been anecdotal. But there is now, there are now numbers, thank you, thanks to a Credit Suisse, so a bank over in, uh, in Switzerland, a study that says, yeah, you know what? It's not fake. They really are at, an ac- at a um, uh, financial disadvantage against their parents and against their parents' parents. This is a generation that right now is struggling financially. They are apparently having it tougher when it comes to jobs and income than others. It's not just whining. It's not just complaining. It is true. So what does this mean, though, to the broader economy? Well, you know who we're calling on when we need to talk about finances and the economy. Uh, Our good friend and our favorite economic analyst and teacher, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, who has just raced home from Toronto in time to do the show tonight. Marvin, thanks for doing this. My my pleasure. Now, those songs you were talking about earlier, are these actually pop tunes or could they be television theme songs? Because you and I, just a few seconds into Gilligan's Island, we'd know that song anywhere. You know, I didn't do TV theme songs, mostly because we do that every Thursday night when we play TV theme song, name that tune. These are mostly pop songs. I even wondered tonight whether to put on the list something like Beethoven's Fifth, because everybody would, da 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 you would know that instantly. But these are these are pop and rock and other songs that people are familiar with. But stick around. You'll, you, you'll know most of them, Marvin. I'm sure you will. By the way, one other small correction. Capital N, little a, capital C, little L, not capital L. See, this is why I never pursued a career in chemistry. Yeah, unfortunately, I have a degree in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you really? Yes. What don't you have a degree in? <laughs> well, all the nice human things out there. So I have a degree in chemistry and a degree in statistics before doing my master's degree in business. So I was all into the numbers side of things. Yeah, the only thing you didn't do in your life was go to beauty school. That's coming up next in your retirement, maybe. Yes, go to exactly. become a beautician. Yes, nail salon. <laughs> <laughs> well, for some of the millennials, yep. uh, that may be an option just to find something that they can do. I'm I'm looking at this, and the story is that we're not we're not. Um, it's not complaining. It's not whining. There is a re- legitimate situation here going on that millennials are having a more difficult time than their parents. And I'm thinking if we have an entire cohort of our population, if there is one generation that is struggling. That can't be good for the economy as a whole. So, you know, let's, let's come at this a couple of ways, if you don't mind, Scott. The first thing is I don't actually think of it as a millennial problem. I think of it as a baby boomer problem. So we have this major wave of people born from 1946 to 1964. That was the first generation that really began to adopt post-secondary education. And, and that whole mantra, you know, get something more go to a community college, go to a university, get something more. That will be your ticket to the good life. And I know in my case, my parents, my father didn't finish high school. My mother did, but that's as far as she went. And when I went off to university, they were so proud. Uh, but they also said, oh, you're going down a road we've never been down before. And yes, you know, they were hoping for better things. But what's happening now, Scott, is first, the baby boomers aren't getting out of the road. They've changed the rules where we used to be able to say to you, well, you know, we're going to need a lot of teachers in the next few years because they're all going to be retiring. What have we come along and done? Well, the baby boomers said, who, who, who says we have to retire? 
So let's get rid of mandatory retirement. We'll work just as long as we want to. I'm not picking on them, but I have colleagues at the university teaching well into their 70s, in some ways should have retired 8, 10, 12 years ago, but I'm, I'm too youthful to retire. I'm too too clever to retire. I don't need to go. And so these people are not making way for the next generation. The other thing that's happened is, you know, just how much education do you need to succeed? We have a, a mantra we give the millennials now that, you know, just gather more letters. One degree isn't enough. Get two, get three, get four. Get them by the half dozen. They're better. And what we're finding is they're actually getting more education than they need for the jobs they want, and they're not getting a good return on that education. So the bottom line to the Credit Suisse study is that for the first time in, in probably forever, we have a generation coming out who may not, who may not exceed the previous generation in what's going to happen to their lives. There will be exceptions. There will always be the tremendously gifted or maybe people who get into technology careers. Those are still great ways to make a lot of money. But if you if you go down into a path, you may not do any better than your parents. And to your question, you know, what, what does that mean? I think the bigger question for us is whether this is just a, a one-time correction. Once the baby boom generation kind of dies off and the population pyramid starts to look more normal as opposed to having that big bulge that's been working its way through, will we go back to a situation like we had 100 years ago? Or is this now the new normal? Will this be the case that, okay, we're all about as advanced as we're ever going to be, so it's 50-50. You'll either do a little better than your parents or you may do a little worse than your parents, but there's no specific ticket uh, to a good life or a pathway paved with gold. It is amazing to me that you brought up, the first thing you brought up was the retirement, because honestly, that was the first thing that I thought of, the non-mandatory retirement. Back in, I think it was 2008, roughly, when most of the provinces said, or the last of the provinces ruled it out and said, you do not have to get out. There can't be forced retirement at 65. And that was the first thing I thought of, is if we don't have a system in place where we can move people out and vacate some of those jobs, how can we possibly be surprised that there aren't a lot of positions open for people coming up at the bottom? Right, and, and then, then this also leads to that when a position does open up, it tends to be what we call precarious employment, meaning, well, we're not sure that's a permanent position, so let's give you a six-month contract. Oh, you did a good job. We'll renew that for another six months. We'll renew that. Now, you pay your dues. Eventually, we'll turn that into a full-time contract, but I know in my own situation, when I started at the university way back in 1984, I had a one-year contract, and it was renewed two or three years. But I, you know, I was told if you keep your nose clean and you do the job right, this will happen. I, I know people today who, who are sweating on, on contracts, not having any idea whether they'll be renewed. How do you think about buying a home, even buying a new car, uh, getting married, having children, if you don't have some guarantee of employment uh, as you go forward. So this is the malaise. Now, I think it corrects itself, but it doesn't correct when it used to. It used to correct itself by about age 25. At that point, you had started going down a career road, and you could make these other plans. Today, it's happening more in the 30s, and in some cases, as late as 35. The only, the only bright side to this, Scott, is that the other thing that's happening is we're also all living longer, so maybe these people aren't as well off as their parents at a certain age, but maybe they'll be better off down the road. But that's a big gamble as well. Has this ever happened before? No. Or, or that, that we've had a, a cohort that is now in the position of not doing better than their parents? No, and that's, and that's again, just thanks to uh, education. You know, the, the uh, 
my father, God bless him, he, he's been God now for over 30 years, but he was really worried when I said I was going to get a second degree, let alone that I wound up having three. He, you know, he said, oh, my, you just get out and work. What's wrong with you, boy? Get out there and work. And so work was prized before. Education was just a rare commodity. Today, thanks to our relative affluence, we're encouraging students to gather more education, do more, but not necessarily with a payback in mind. And look, again, I don't want to put any pressure on people. Most parents will say, I'm, I'm mostly worried that my child is going to lead a happy life. Whether they are fabulously wealthy and own three houses and seven cars, that's not important to me. What's important is that they lead a, a happy, productive life in however they want to define it, and I want to give them the tools to do that. But it used to be that you could excel uh, your previous generation because the previous generation just didn't have access to education and other kinds of tools that we had out there. Today, though, those tools are getting so common. Uh, who doesn't own a computer? Who doesn't own some of this technology? And yet we're not going past it. So now once we get the whole population up to that baseline, then we've evened things out. And now it really is random luck whether one generation will be better off than the one before. What becomes difficult with this, though, is that we are all getting older, everyone's getting older, uh, but those of us who are either in the baby boomer generation or the one behind it, someday we are going to want our health care paid for, we're going to want our Canada pension paid for, we're going to want all these things to pay to be paid, and we need someone to pay for those things. And if we've created a situation where so many of these people are not going to be able to put the same amount into the system... We may have lingered around and kept our job for longer and been able to make more money, but eventually, is this not going to bite us? Yes, and it, and it may. Now, for the moment, uh, there's a couple other things happening. So one of those other things happening is, is giving birth. Uh, Canada, Canadians, on our own, do not create enough children to sustain our population. So left to our own devices, our population would naturally get smaller. Uh, a couple, uh, a husband and wife or, or whatever it happens to be, needs to have 2.2 children. If you have 2.2 children, you sustain your population. Our birth rate's around 1.4 children per, per couple, and many people aren't even being a, a couple out there. So how we're trying to supplement this, of course, through uh, uh, immigration. And you saw last week a big announcement from the federal government that they were upping their limits. They were trying to go up to maybe as many as 450,000 people coming into the country every year to make up for the lack of, of newborn people that we're bringing into this country. Now, in bringing in those 450,000, we're not just taking anybody. We screen them to look for certain skill sets. And it's also true, Scott, and this, this has remained true over the last century, that it seems that new Canadians are willing to take some jobs that we've kind of talked native-born Canadians out of doing. In other words, again, um, uh, I teach at a university, and lots of parents want their children funneled into university, I will often counsel parents and say, don't forget community colleges, don't forget skilled trades. I still need a mechanic. I still need someone to put the bricks on my wall. I still need someone who can fix my furnace. And if you are a mechanic, you can earn $100 an hour. You know, it's not, it's not minimum wage jobs, these skilled trades. But for some reason, again, as we have sort of embraced education, we've turned people off of these other trades. And that's the other thing that's going to come back to bite us we may very well find we just don't have anybody to do the things that we need just to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. Last thing, most um, most people who are boomers, who are Gen X, whatever you want to call them, the biggest investment they have and something they are looking at 
to help fund their retirement one way or another or to pass money on to their kids is their home. That is the largest thing that they own. Now, they may have RSPs as well. They may have investments. But for many of them, their home is the thing that it holds the most value. If we are not creating a situation where people are coming up behind to buy those homes, at least at the same prices because they can't afford it, does this not have then a detrimental effect to drive eventually drive down the prices so the value of that piece of your retirement goes down? Mm-hmm. So that, that's been a concern expressed for the better part of the last two, two decades. And not so much, if we will, in the urban environment in downtown Toronto where you're in a 600-square-foot condo, but these mega homes that you see in the suburbs that are 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 square feet have four-car garages that are now selling for seven figures, and usually the first digit is in a one, so the home is $2.3 million. What young person can afford to buy that? Uh, and even at age 35, most of them don't have anywhere near the equity to do something like that. Are we by, in essence, turning people into a very urban generation, people who are saying, you know, I'm not going to have the same kind of a house my parents had. I'm going to buy a box of air, or basically a condo. When I want to recreate, it's not going to be in my backyard. I'll use a public park. I, I may not have a car. I'll use public transportation. None of those things are, in essence, bad. But given a population today that is so based in suburbia, and that suburban dream, if we are converting to this more urban dream, there can be these kind of financial repercussions. For the moment, for the moment, there still seem to be enough people interested in that existing housing stock that we haven't seen prices really take any kind of a tank. As you know, for the last few years, housing prices have actually been on quite a tear. But there's still a concern that we may start to see this change, and it may also change as our dependency on oil changes, as we introduce new technologies like self-driving cars. The future in the next 20, 30 years has a lot of unknowns, very hard to predict what the compounding effects of all these are going to be. Always appreciate the time, sir. And I think tomorrow or maybe the next day for our quiz question, we'll just have a uh, what don't we know about Marvin Ryder quiz question. <laughs> I had no idea about the chemistry degree. We'll, we'll, we'll have a series of things of, of you know multiple choice, which is not true of Marvin Ryder. What's, and see what's, what even, the, what's even worse is that I have a minor in psychology, so that's even worse. But anyway, that's for another day. There's many things for another day, obviously. You are a deep well that we have untapped at this point. Marvin Ryder, DeGroote School of Business, thanks for the time as always. Anytime. Happy to, Scott. It is, uh, again, I, I point this out, I bring up this story because it is easy and it is a great fallback position for people to point to millennials. Millennials has become almost a bad word for some people. It's almost become a joke. You know, oh, they whine, oh, they complain, oh, they don't work hard. This is pointing out that, you know what, they may have some complaints about stuff, but you know what? It's because they've got some legitimate gripes. This study from the Swiss bank is pointing out they are legitimately struggling financially compared to generations before them. So it would be completely improper to simply scoff at some of the things that are being said about the challenges facing this particular group. And if you are an older person who is listening saying, oh, they're just complaining because they don't work as hard as I did in my day. That is probably, almost certainly now, based on the numbers, not a fair criticism. Maybe for some, but you want to know something? There were some baby boomers who weren't hard workers. There were some people who were in Gen X who weren't hard workers. There were even some people in the greatest generation who weren't hard workers. Believe it or not, we forget that sometimes. We think that every single person who lived during the war years was a nose-to-the-grindstone, grueling worker. No, not everybody was. 
But it's an interesting situation right now, a challenging situation facing this particular cohort. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There's been ideas thrown around for a long time now about whether or not First Ontario Centre is the future arena for this city. It was built 32 years ago. It's not brand new. If we were to get an NHL team tomorrow, I believe, if I'm correct, that this would be the second oldest arena in the NHL when that team arrived. This is not a new building. But what do you do about that? What is the answer? And since we have a team, an OHL team, not an NHL team, since we have an OHL team that doesn't fill a 17,000-seat arena and never will fill a 17,000-seat arena, there's no junior hockey team in the world that does, is it time to begin exploring the concept of a newer smaller facility somewhere in town that could be used for concerts, could be used for hockey, could be used for a lot of different things. And if it is time, how do we make that happen? Well, that idea was really raised last week by the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. His name is Michael Andlauer. Uh, he joins me now. Sir, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, thank you. You're welcome, Scott. I don't know if you can hear yet. The uh, Bulldogs had a school day game today, which is uh, generally a test of your eardrum strength when the kids start screaming. Are, 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 can you hear anything, or are you still di- buzzing? Yeah, I'm all good. I'm getting used to it. And actually, if we had brought the Catholic school board in, we would have sold out uh, for the Ontario. <laughs> well, you had, you're doing that later in the year. They're coming down later for another screamathon. Um, you it was great. The players loved it. It was a great. It was a great day by all, and 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 every children was accounted for when they left. So it was good too. Well, yeah, that, that, that's a good sign. And your team played probably its best game of the year, so all was good. Well, yeah, that's that's nice to hear. You um you have gotten people talking now again. It's happened a few times before, but very seriously uh, about what should be done about First Ontario Center and about the concept of a new arena in town. Before we venture too far into this. At this point, are you are you legitimately serious about pursuing something like this if it could be done? Oh, absolutely, uh, Scott. I, I mean, I think we've we've. I mean, it's, uh, you've been to the to the to the arena, and and uh, uh, I've been there for many years. And now, especially with the OHL and having traveled, uh, you know, across Ontario to the various uh, uh, arenas, uh, it uh, it gets me more anxious to to do something that's going to be worthy of Hamilton that Hamiltonians are going to uh, in, enjoy more especially the millennials that you were talking about earlier on so i mean what what would be your dream what would be what you would be thinking of for an arena for this city well um well certainly i mean uh what would be my dream my dream would be, would be to bring the nhl into hamilton i'll be i'll be the first first one in line for that uh the, i'm also a, a realist and, and uh and it's you, sometimes you have to deal with the the opportunity and if the opportunity arises then you seize it but uh, at this at this juncture i'm not uh, i'm not hopeful and and there's been enough written about that but from an ohl and a sports entertainment as a hamiltonian wanting wanting the best uh entertainment experience um, I would like to do something that's uh, re- relatively modern, something that gives people choices. Um, uh, the size really doesn't matter um, so long as that the experience is is uh, is exceptional and something that makes makes Hamiltonians proud. And when people come into Hamilton, they uh, they can uh, they can feel good about the, the experience. But you, as you say, you've traveled around. You've been to probably every OHL arena now, and there's a lot of people around here who have been to a number of them. Is there one arena 
that as a guideline, not as an exact carbon copy, but as a guideline that you would look at and say, that would be the perfect kind of arena for this city? Yeah, I think Oshawa uh, resonates for me. Um, you know, uh, that that has a uh, you know a nice luxury suites. It has club seating. It has a restaurant uh, with vantage point to seeing the seeing uh, the entertainment, uh, whether it be on the ice or a concert and the like. Um, <clears throat> uh, beautiful score clock uh, uh, and um, uh, about six thousand seats. 6, yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah. So why now, though? I mean, again, this arena has been here. Cops Coliseum, First Ontario Centre, has been around for three decades now. You've been in there for uh, the end of this year. I think it's 15 years that you've owned this team and you've kept a team in there. Why Why start thinking about this seriously now? Uh, it's probably because I'm getting really old now. <laughs> I'm getting older. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, and I, and I just, uh, you know, it, it's... It's time. I think you, in your article, you, I think you, you use the word, word approaching relic status. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's, uh, it's time. And, you know, we, we, we want to be a first-class city. We're, we're growing. Um, you know, I think there, there was, uh, you know, an application for, you know, uh, to, to be the headquarter, the second headquarter for Amazon that was submitted by the city of Hamilton and, a lot of effort was put in, and, and certainly somebody who wants to come in the city wants wants to be have the ability to go to nice restaurants and be entertained, and 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 have have the amenities that are uh, that uh, you know that are aligned, and and you know sometimes you know, and I don't get me wrong, I mean I I, I you know I'm I'm passionate about the city, and 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 uh, but I. I get a little jealous, you know, when I when I go to uh, to Oshawa or, or even down the road in St. Catharines and see uh, see what they're able to experience uh, with with choices. And you know, you talked about millennials earlier on. They they, they want choices. They want uh, you know, and, and and that's that's the reality. And they want the choices in the foods that they eat. Uh, they want they want the choices uh, of be able to multitask if they have to. And and. Uh, um, and they're willing to spend for it, uh, you know, as well. So, um, anyway, that's, uh, that's what I'd like to see. We, you have mentioned about the fact that this would, this would have to be new. This would have to be, um, this would be a downsize though. And, and there are people who are concerned and, and they've made it very clear that they are concerned about this, that if there was to be built a, let's say a 7,000 seat, 8,000 seat arena, whatever it was. And then somehow, after all these years, Hamilton was to be able to get its hands on an NHL team. Well, what about cops call a first Ontario center then? Because it would be gone. How do you answer that question? That if we're going to downsize to a smaller rink, what do you do if the dream ever comes true and you get a new team to come here? Well, that's easy. I mean, I don't, first of all, it's apples and oranges, Scott. You don't, you don't, uh, you're going to build a facility that's, you know, that's, you know, you know, I think I think St. Catharines was sixty million dollars, and and uh, you know you, um, you're talking about in Quebec with NHL rank was four hundred million. So you're, you're it's uh, if you're going to bring an NHL team, you're going to put an NHL arena in there. Uh, First Ontario Center couldn't do that. No, well we know these. You, you, the the council's seen the studies and they've they've seen it. It's it's you know the concept is you know you couldn't. It's like taking a house that's. Uh, you know that that's you got 
that's got you know, the lead pipes and, and, and the old old materials, and, and, and you're trying to do a retrofit, and then all of a sudden you realize after you spent almost nearly as much money, you probably wish you had torn it down and started fresh. Um, those are the realities, and you look around. I mean, you, you know, Calgary's not doing a retrofit. They're looking for a new building. Edmonton did the same thing. I mean, people, I mean, I think, I think the studies show that, you know, terms of trying to be an NHL, I think it was two, three hundred million bucks even for, for, for First Ontario um, Centre. The, I mean, there's no way to have this discussion without talking about price. It's just come up already about what yeah. this would be. When I talked to you the other day in the piece for the paper, uh, I can't remember if you said substantial or significant. It was one of those two S words that you said you would be willing <laughs> of your own money to put in, either one. I mean, it's the same basic thing. You're, you're saying you're willing to put in a large amount of money. Can you be more specific about that? Because that's one of the things that people have said when the article came out. They said, oh, well, he says he'll be putting in substantial money, but you know, he'll still be relying on most of that to come from the city. W- what did you mean by significant or substantial? I think you. I think let me just see quick quote. You think you said substantial or, or uh, like I, I. I to me, it's not. It's uh, uh, it, you know, it all depends. And I'm not waffling, but I, I mean, if I guess if I answered it, if I said I'd match the, if I would match what the city put in, would, would that be deemed as substantial in your eyes? Well, if it's an eighty million dollar arena and then it was forty forty, I would say that would be substantial. Sure, absolutely, I would say that's a substantial amount of money. But do you get the sense that there would be, even if that was the case, do you get the sense from anybody that there's appetite around the council table to even begin having that discussion? And that's up to the city. And I've, I've been quite clear about it. I, I, to me, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that people talk about, and I think you refer to in, in the article with respect to, to, you know, Lime Ridge Mall up on the mountain, and, and you're, you know, Hamilton's a very big city, and then and there's a downtown, and obviously with the LRT being built, uh, being built, and you know where do you want to where where does it go and and uh, uh, to me uh, you know I have had some preliminary talks with the city and I've asked them I said you 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 here's a clear canvas you you go ahead and you paint you paint your canvas you, you what 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 do you feel the Hamilton Hamiltonians want and you paint the canvas and then we get and then we can get the public private consortiums together and. And, it, and if it and if it makes sense, if it's a win-win, then 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 that's great. And then you know, but I, I don't want to dictate where it's going to go. Uh, it's not. I I don't know any better. I think the city councilors who represent all the uh, all the citizens in the city, they they should you know they have their voice and they should know what's in the best interest. But but you got to do something. You can't status quo doesn't work for the city. It's not. It doesn't work. It's not fair for Hamiltonians to 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 to. Um, be in a position where you know people from St. Catharines or London or Oshawa have a better uh, sports and entertainment experience. What are the challenges? Because I mean, obviously, the Lime Ridge thing came up. That was suggested by somebody else. Uh, there have been lots of thoughts about where an arena could go. What are the challenges of having an arena for the kind of thing you're doing for either Bulldogs or even for concerts, whatever? Else? What are the challenges of having that in the downtown? Uh, the challenges are. Uh, um, are uh, I mean, um, what are the challenges? Parking would be a challenge, or per- perception of parking. Uh, security might be a challenge, uh, or perception of security. Um, 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 I mean, I, 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 nothing precludes from from having it in downtown. I know that you know there's talks about on the mountain or the, or, the, but. 
it, there's no the challenges are you know, that that needs to be talked to you know look look you know nothing's perfect nothing will be a perfect scenario but at the end of the day it's it's uh um no nothing nothing will preclude it uh you got to look at you know if 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 the bulldogs are, were to be the anchor tenant uh in this obviously they they uh you would want to make sure that 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 they're truly hockey fans uh that that go there and, and the demographics of of that um you know it's family entertainment it's community um based so um that's something to be discussed but i don't see that being a challenge per se could you envision a scenario now i mean obviously one of the things we've talked about just even now is the private public partnership could you ever envision a scenario in which you said you know what, we're not getting anywhere with the city council, doesn't seem all that intrigued by this. I'm going to go and find a partner in the private sector and we're going to do this ourselves and make a go of it. Um, I, I think the economics uh, may not work. As you know, I've, I've, I've been in this, you know, in, in hockey in Hamilton for the last 15 years and uh, you know, it's 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 a labor of love, and it, and it's uh, and it's been great rewards. I mean, today, we, you know, with the with this morning, we had breakfast. Uh, the Bulldogs Foundation had its breakfast with its corporate cl- uh, partners and 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 the school board beforehand, and you know that felt you were there. That felt that felt real good, and and, and uh, you know, you know, and just the experience even of today with the, with the school kids and and. And what Hamilton Bulldogs means to the community to me makes that those are rewards that I, you can't really put a price tag on. Um, so for me, it's been, I've been I mean I've been very lucky as uh, as an individual and, and um, with my health and businesses and and so it, for me it's it's uh, um, you know at the end of the day I think I think it's I don't want to be taking the burden of of, of doing what's important for the city too. Um, uh, I think there's an opportunity there to create a win-win, and uh, to do it yourself, I don't think it's you know it's uh, um, you can do the math you know on, on terms of ticket prices and 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 uh, hockey operation and and a building and running a building. So, but I, I we I think I think the numbers can be such so that going forward it doesn't you know it wouldn't cost the the the, the city any money. Where today they're subsidizing not only the maintenance capital costs of, of, of running First Ontario uh, Centre to actually having to subsidize some, some, some of the, um, um, you know, some other, um, some of the other costs, uh, um, daily operating costs. Is there a time frame for all this? Have you got in your mind when this all has to be decided or when something has to happen? I would like I would like to I would like to get this ball moving quicker sooner than later I, it, you know and I don't I I like I said I don't want to be sitting here in five years and still being in the same place and 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 having the fans you know the the fan base will 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 be less and the people will go elsewhere uh, for for their entertainment and and those are the things that you know and you got to be uh, we got to be cognizant about it and I think that's that's We've got a good thing going right now in Hamilton, uh, you know, and I think we, um, you know, like I said, to me the status quo is not, it's not, it's not acceptable and and I'd like to hear somebody say that it is acceptable. Last thing before I let you go, because we're out of time, what happens if this thing, if, if city council, somebody brings this up, one of the councillors decides to raise this 
and it gets shot down. What happens if city council turns you aside and offers an absolute no and says, we're just not interested in starting this discussion? What then? Uh, then it speaks to, you know, I guess it speaks to what the city feels is what's important for Hamiltonians. Uh, and that's, and I, and I understand, and that's why to me, a total public uh, initiative is, it, is difficult. I know that there's, you know, infrastructure money that's, that needs to be spent and, and the budgets are tight. And that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to put, uh, you know, money in it a lot more than any other, but anybody else in this city has ever put in sports, uh, and uh, you know, if the the city has had an identity with it, you know, has created an identity um, through through sport with the Tiger Cats and the Bulldogs. There's, a, there's an identification. If if they don't want an identification, then that's that that's okay. I mean, they they can do it in, in other forms. But at the end of the day, I they'll have spoken, and that's fine. I, to- I and I totally respect that. Um, what happens after that? It will will. Uh, We'll, uh, hopefully we'll have won a Memorial Cup by then. <laughs> Michael Anlauer, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Appreciate the time tonight, sir. Thanks for doing Thanks. this. Appreciate it. Thanks. That is, um, you know what? There's something, there's a lot interesting in there. M- number one on the list for all the people who said, what did he actually mean by substantial or significant money? Well, I think he answered the question there that whatever, if he's willing to go 50, 50 with the city, that's a lot of money. If, if it's an $80 million arena, that's $40 million. If it's a $100 million arena, that's $50 million. That is, you heard him. I'm not making this up for him. You heard him say that here. Uh, that that is, that is a significant, I think, a significant amount of money that you would be talking about someone putting into a rink. But we will see at this point whether the city council, whether anyone from the city is actually interested in pursuing that. No word yet. I can't believe that someone at the city would not want to at least have a discussion about this, at least explore it. I mean, heaven knows we explore a million other things to see whether there's anything there. I can't believe they're not going to at least look into this and explore and see whether there is something there to be done. But we wait for that one. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. My next guest gets over a million views of his YouTube videos every month. And if you're thinking a million views, is that a lot? Yes, that is a lot. That is a lot of people tuning in to see what you are putting up on YouTube. Keep in mind, you can put anything pretty much up on YouTube and thousands and thousands of people do. And most of it slips off into the ether unviewed or looked at by friends and family. If you do something that's really great, you might get a few thousand people. He's getting a million views a month. That is a lot. He's the creator of something called Scratch Garden. He'll explain to you what that is in a minute. He's an artist. He's an animator. He's a Hamiltonian. And now he is a children's star, which I'm not sure he ever set out to be, but that's what he is now. His name is Steve Newbury, and he joins me. Steve, thanks for doing this tonight. No problem. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Was that the plan? Was the plan to go into life and eventually become the modern children's star, the modern Mr. Dress-Up, the modern whoever? No, absolutely not. (laughs) What, what was the plan? How did you end up then here? Well, I created Scratch Garden. It's uh, an animated YouTube channel. It's an educational channel as a side project to my animation business. So I create animated explainers for businesses, corporate clients, charities, etc. 
And uh, at any time I had a break in between projects, I worked on Scratch Garden. It combined my two favorite L words, learning and laughter. Um, and I made educational videos for kids and people that used to be kids. So it's a lot of cool, very funny, animated, educational YouTube videos that talk about things uh, in the curriculum that you would learn at school, but it reinforces it in a really fun way with animation and my own uh, sometimes weird but fun sense of humor. So, okay, so you are someone, you've done this before, as you just explained, and you've done it for more serious things in the past. Mm-hmm. What was the, What did you do? Were you just sitting there one day and fiddling around with something and all of a sudden it came to mind to do a children's thing, or how did you start? Well, actually, it's interesting. I went to, I'm an artist, although that's on pause right now while I uh, push this animation business forward. Uh, But I went to web design school about 12 years ago and was introduced to something called Flash. And that was a really big animation uh, platform on the web. And I found that I had a knack for explaining things. And I was able to actually get a small internship with TVO, TV Ontario. It was in Toronto at the time. I was in Toronto at the time. And I started to create animations for them. And then after the internship was over, TVO Kids uh, contacted me, and we started a relationship um, based on these animations I was creating for TVO. But they were for, like, you know, political things, the kind of stuff that TVO talks about. And so TVO Kids, um, I started, we started to adapt, you know, that kind of explanatory message to fun animations for a younger audience. And then I brought in my brother and sister, who are both musicians, and we started to create original music to go along with, um, you know, explaining, you know, fun but educational things. So give me an example. For the people who are listening, give me one example of, of when you say explaining educational things. Like what? Well, I'll talk about the animation that actually was the basis for the book, which if there's time, we'll talk about later. Uh, of course, well. yep, yep. But it's on uh, punctuation, and if you you know Google or YouTube search Scratch Garden punctuation, um, it, it's a video, it's just a two-minute video, and it's called Punctuation Explained by Punctuation. So, you know, you can go onto YouTube and see a teacher in front of a blackboard explaining punctuation, but that's not very interesting to me. So what I did using my you know, sense of humor and also power of um, animation is I thought, hey, what if we asked punctuation what they're all about? <laughs> so literally exclamation mark comes on screen and explains itself. And guess what? Everything that exclamation mark says is really exciting and really loud. That kind of thing is, is so simple but so effective you know, if you are learning uh, English, whether you're young or um, learning English as a second language, like that type of thing seems to, in my opinion at least, be really effective to get the message across quite, you know, simply and effectively. Uh, you know, probably a lot more for most learners than someone sitting in front of a, a blackboard. Yes, I wish they had that uh, when I was trying to learn all my punctuation. Yeah, um, yeah next next you're going to have to move to there, there, and there just to sort everybody out on that one. Oh, um, that's a really good one. <laughs> Okay, so now you, do I understand that you have young kids? Yes. So before you really got going on this, were they part of this? Did you run these? Did you show them and say, hey, does this work for them? Or was this well before they even got into the picture here? Well before. um, You know, my my kids are two and five. And so my son is five years old, and he's just getting to the target age of, of some of these learning concepts, which Scratch Garden talks about. 
So I was doing the TVO Kids stuff, uh, you know, over a decade ago. And then I've been doing it the last five years. And again, it's, it's really within the last six months or so that he's just kind of hit that point um, where the learning concepts, you know, make sense to him. This all being said, they're, they're really fun animations. And, you know, he would watch them or I would run them by uh, him or even my two-year-old daughter. And if there's a, a dog or a, a funny-looking elephant on screen, you know, that's entertaining as well. Um, so I often say these animations are for all ages. Um, one thing I've always made sure to do is, you know, create original music, again, with my musician brother and sister, but we're always trying to create music that adults would like, but it just has kids' lyrics. So uh, a lot of my animations are, are, are good for adults, because if they got to listen to this stuff over and over, you well, know, I, you know, I was to be accessible. <laughs> I was going to say that because there is a secret to good kids programming. I, I've had two kids. They're now grown. They're both at university, but I've been through it. I watched all the years of Sesame Street and Blue's Clues and all these, you know, <laughs> Magic School Bus and all these things. I lived that. And the secret to good animation is that the kids like it because they find it entertaining and they find it engaging, but that you're not making the parents insane when it's on all the time. There has to be something there that engages the parents as well. And they will never admit it, but yeah. that's the truth of this thing. <laughs> Um, you have to be able to cover a lot of bases and hit a lot of targets. No, I, I totally agree with that. And there's, uh, you know, even Sesame Street and, of yep. course, the, the Muppets, which is, which is kind of in the same realm. It's not really for kids or adults. It's for both. But Sesame Street will throw out one-liners that have puns and stuff that you know a five-year-old is not going to get. No, references and, to pop culture stuff that they would never yeah. have any idea. Yeah. Um, and it, even the, the modern-day kind of DreamWorks, cartoons and stuff like that do it all the time um so you know that's it really and a lot of um you know I, I hate to talk about my youtube channel as a as a reaction to to things that i don't like because it sounds a little bit negative but i i just found there was a lot of kids music online on youtube like you know if you search for twinkle twinkle little star i mean you're going to throw your computer out the window in about five minutes because <laughs> they're just all these terrible versions so uh, with my siblings, you know, we wanted to create rock and roll songs, and, and we do that, I think, quite effectively. Um, so you'll, you'll throw your computer out in, I don't know, maybe 50 minutes as opposed to five. Well, as long as you don't ever do a redo of It's a Small World After All, we're fine. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So how yeah, did you... not on the agenda. But. No, good. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Uh, so how do you know? So you start doing this, you start putting these up on YouTube... And I suppose with YouTube, one of the things that's great is you can actually see actual numbers, so you can see who's viewing it. But how, how or when did you start to think, you know, I'm actually getting traction with this. People are more than family and friends are actually tuning in to see this. Right. Um, it took a while, and it was a bit of a slow burn. I've been on there for about four years. In the first year, I was just experimenting with things. Um, but it's the first few videos I did, so some core concepts like... Um, vowel sounds and, you know, sentences. And again, there's original music with that. Um, and they just started to get shared and, and get good comments and stuff like that back and forth. Um, but it's only recently, basically this September, that I've been hitting the about a, a million views a month. Um, you know, my views always go up during the school year. They go down in the summer. They go down at the holiday season. They go down on the weekends. But uh, it, it's really only been the last few months that it's hit a million over the last like two, three months, which has been great. Um, so, it, you know, it's doing better than ever. But that being said, there, there's so many new YouTube channels every day. Um, it, it's just 
it's it, the competition's always there. But are you surprised I, when you get to a million? That's a big, big number, and it's a lovely totally. round number, and it looks great. Are you surprised when you see that? I don't know. Just because I've been working on it for so long, maybe not. And because I'm quite ambitious about it, you know, I'm, I'm in some ways I could, on certain days, be disappointed with that. And the other thing is, it. it I really like the material. It's evergreen in terms of, you know, it's educational and the stuff I'm talking about will be very relevant in 20 or 200 years. But it, it, it gets frustrating sometimes to see, you know, very uh, pop culture-y things or go viral on YouTube and, you know, they have 20, 30, 40 million views. And, you know, I don't think it'll stand the test of time. I don't know if, I don't know, um, Justin Bieber's new video will be hugely popular in 20 years from now. But it, it's frustrating to see some really uh, banal kind of stuff um, get so many more views. So I think there's still a lot, a long way to go. If you could just have your like exclamation mark, eat a spoonful of cinnamon, <laughs> then, you know, you're golden or, or you know, or I don't know what else. If, you know, get your semicolon to have gas problems. I mean, you're probably going to, you know, triple your numbers just by having a farting semicolon. That would probably do it. I don't know. Uh, now, can you, yeah. can, can someone like, can you make a living doing this or can you at least make some decent money doing this? I mean, I think if you get bigger, um, the problem is YouTube, you know, it's 10 or 15 years old. But the, the, the economics behind it and the algorithms behind it change every year. So how does it work, so, though? Because most people don't have any idea how someone makes money on YouTube. How does that work? So specifically, you can, you can opt in to put ads before your YouTube video plays. Uh, you, and so everyone's been to YouTube in an ad. They have to sit through an ad or they sit through five seconds of an ad. Um, and that if, if you click or if you sit through that video or if you click on the video... Um, the money is generated from that clip behind the scenes. So, and like an advertiser, like a car company will put however many hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever into YouTube videos, um, into their ads. And then every time they get a click, um, you know, whatever that amount is worth, it depends on a bunch of factors like time of day, the, the country, the currency, um, you know, half of that money revenue would come to myself and half of it goes to YouTube. So it's, it's just like the old-fashioned model of commercials on TV, but, um, you know, it's a bit more varied because a lot of users watching YouTube have, have a choice whether to skip that ad or, or not kind of thing. So that's really the only way. Um, the, the second way, and this is, you know, where I need to get through next, so maybe you have some entrepreneurs uh, listening, but, you know, you need to use YouTube as a platform to, 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 and wrap a business plan around that kind of thing. Um, whether that's promoting something like, you know, I do have a book as yep. well, um, or uh, I don't know, something educational like an app or, or some sort of, you know, system that people can, you know, download to teach their kids that's more extensive than just a few videos kind of thing. I don't really know at this point, but um, a lot of people use that as leverage to get, you know, you know, second part of their business out the door kind of thing. Well, let's mention it. You mentioned it, and I want to bring it up. You, you do have a book that's just out. Mm-hmm. It's called Semicolons, Cupcakes, and Cucumbers, three things that obviously go together. <laughs> um, what is the book about? Well, it is based on the uh, punctuation video on those characters um, that I mentioned before, and it's about four friends who are the, the punctuation marks that we all know, exclamation mark, question mark, period, and comma. And, of course, they're always in character, question mark, only asks questions, and is confused all the time. <laughs> Exclamation mark is really loud. That gets on everyone else's nerves. 
period's a little boring, a little dry, and, and comma likes to go on and on and just kind of list things. <laughs> so I had to wrap that into a story. So it's kind of an adventure story about what they want to do with their days. Um, and, of course, exclamation mark always gets its way. Just so effective and, and forceful with its language. And, um, and then a- anyway, what happens, and this happens in the video as well, uh, and in the book, a semicolon kind of comes in from nowhere, and nobody has any idea <laughs> what this thing is, <laughs> which reflects, you know, everyone else in the world who doesn't know what a semicolon is. 100%. And, um, yeah, so semicolon in the book, you know, helps the, the characters out a bit. I don't want to get, uh, give too many spoilers. Um, and that's pretty much it, other than that the last three or four pages, that, you know, there's kind of a, a thing we call learning time, and uh, I go into what all these punctuation marks actually do, um, you know, in kind of a textbooky way. So um, there's, a, there's an educational component, you know, wrapped around the story, but also, a, you know, specifically educational component at the end. Well, I, the book, I, I saw the book, uh, as I say, the, um, your story came to my attention through the piece that Emma Riley did in the paper, and I was walking by Emma's desk, and I saw the book. And it's terrific. And I went online, by the way, too, just so you know, I didn't, uh, I, I, I did do a little research and I watched some scratch garden videos and you know what? They are terrific. They're, they're not terribly complicated, uh, either artistically or conceptually, and they're easy to follow and they are fun. And, um, I, I would hope that people would go and whether they have kids, if they have kids, they certainly should be doing this. But even if they don't, to go and check it out again, just type, go to YouTube, type in scratch garden. Um, there is a, a look to all of the, what do you call it? The main pages, I guess, of the, uh, uh, so they can find them. They, they'll be able to find them. And uh, it is, uh, it is very cool. It's very fun that you're doing this and, uh, and that you're having so much success. Um, Steve Newbury, really appreciate the time today. Thanks very much. No problem. Thank you very much. Uh, go take a look. I say, not, well, not right now. Wait till after the show. But go take a look because it is, uh, it's a Hamilton guy who's doing something really interesting that is fun. And if you do have kids or grandkids or if you know kids, Send them a little email and say, hey, you know what? Check this out. If you've got, and, and I'm thinking, I don't know. How, I should have asked them what the age range is. 5 to 12 or 13 maybe would probably be the dynamic range that you'd be looking at for these kind of things. But go check it out and, and decide. But it's um, Scratch Garden, just like it sounds, on YouTube. And, uh, and then tell someone. Let them know if they've got kids. Let them know, you know what? You should probably, rather than your kid watching another YouTube video of someone falling off their bike and landing on their head or whatever else. Uh, Do this. It's fun and it's educational. And what could be better than that? Or they could just go and watch those people eating spoonfuls of cinnamon powder again and choking themselves half to death. I bet, Ben, you probably did watch a few of those cinnamon powder ones, right? Yes, I have. And I know the trick to it. What, to choking yourself to death or not to choking yourself to death? To not choking yourself to death. Well, maybe we'll put you up on that. We'll do it in here one night. We'll have you see if you can eat cinnamon powder and not die. I actually want to. Well, well, we'll, we'll, we may, we, you know what we may do? One of these nights, we may have a whole collection of things. We may have you like eat a package of Pop Rocks and drink a Coke and see if you explode. Ben challenges the internet. Ben challenges the internet. We may have to do that one of these days. We, we, in fact, that is on the list for next week. We are going to do Ben challenges the internet, and we're going to see if you live through these challenges. And I probably need to do it near the end of the show, because if you do die, I don't know how to work all that apparatus in there. So the show will just have to go off the air. 
The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.